so much. Thanks, guys. I uh, just introduced the team. We've got Philippa, we've got Adabola, we've got Jackie, we've got Andy. So welcome, these guys. Thank you for sacrificing. I'm paid to be here, but they're coming free of charge. So, you know, that's, it's not paid very much, but no, it's, great, it's great to be here. It's great to be part. Yeah, so I'm from uh, Bedford, uh, which you, it's fine. You're excused from not knowing where it is. It's about an hour north of London. We're famous for one thing, which is John Bunyan, and we put him in prison. Um, so that's our, fame, that's our claim to fame. And your lead catalyst, uh, which is our family of churches. And uh, what is catalyst? It's around 800 churches. We're not, actually, it's probably more than that. It's probably closer to 1,000. We're not actually sure. Um, we used to know, but then before the summer, we had a conference. Um, and in the conference uh, in the East Africa, uh, the team came back and I asked them, how many churches do you think are there now? And they said, mm, probably about 700. So I'm like, okay, that, that used to be 50. So that's blown all of our numbers out of the water. So God is on the move, which is exciting. It's so good to um, be partnering together in that. Catalyst is an apostolic movement. Uh, we start and we strengthen churches that make disciples to see God's kingdom fill the earth. That's who we are. That's what we do together. What, what does unpack that a little bit? What's an apostolic movement? Well, Jesus is the great apostle. It says, it says that the Father, he said, the Father sent me, so I am sending you. So he is the sent one. That's what the word apostle means. And we are also sent on his behalf. We are sent to share the good news of Jesus Christ wherever we go. Amen? <laughs> A couple of you with me. And so that's what we do. We share God's good news wherever we go. And so we've sent people to Egypt, to Bedfordshire, to Turkey, to Benin. We send people all over the place to share the news and the love of Christ. And... Um, and we send help as well. I remember during the COVID stuff, all of that. Do you remember all that? Oh, I forget about that. Uh, the COVID thing, and uh, I was, we were all, you know, furlough and government support, and I was just aware of our brothers and sisters in other nations that had no furlough that had no support. And I was starting to get reports from some of our pastors saying, literally, our, our people are starving. We have no food and no help and we're locked in our homes with nothing. And I was like, oh, I was just praying about that one day. And the Lord said to me, raise 100,000 pounds in two weeks. I was like, now I've been on a bit of a journey with the Lord over money raising. I was like, okay. So I phoned the team very quickly. I felt like God said this and they're like, okay. So I put out a very quick message to the three minute video. Within two, within two weeks, we'd raised a quarter of a million pounds. And we ultimately, and within six weeks, we raised 650,000 pounds. But the beauty of Catalyst is that rather than some kind of, a kind of outside aid agency, we were able to give it straight to the heart of where the issues were. It went straight to the pastors. We had great accountability working with them. They were able to distribute the food. I mean, guys, you should read the letters and the videos that came in. Literally, people in tears, you saved our lives. It's just beautiful to be part of a family that does that. And then a few years later, Ukraine, we raised over a million pounds. Um, and then recently, the Turkey earthquake, we raised over 550,000 pounds. These numbers just trip off the tongue now. <laughs> God is on the move because we're a family of churches together. 
sending one another, traveling. That was my heart, is that churches know one another. We're connected together. We're in real relationship together. That we start and strengthen churches. That's what we do. We're not just hit and run Christians who kind of go and then go back to our everyday lives. We start churches. So like my friends Radha and Nathan, uh, who are planting in a small flat in Munich. So that's our people who are there, and we're part of that. That's what we do. Uh, We start and we strengthen churches. I believe, I hope you believe the church is the hope of the earth because Jesus is the hope of the earth and we are his body and so many people are getting disaffected and our oh, church and yeah, listen I, I've been hurt in church more I can you give me your hurt in church I can trump your hurt in church <laughs> we've all been hurt we're people you can get if you put five people in a room you put two people in a room put them in there long enough they will hurt one another <laughs> So the reality is you can't escape hurt. We are going to get hurt. We're going to bump into each other. We're going to hurt. Well, the, the key is that we stick together and we work it out. We work it out together. And so I believe in the, the local church that it is the body of Christ that is the light of the, of the world. is shining through Christ, through us, into the world. So we start churches. We strengthen them. That's why we've brought a team here to do that. And we multiply disciples. A disciple is a follower of Jesus. We're not about just a quick altar call. Anyone want to respond to Jesus? No, we're about people who realign their lives to follow Jesus and say, Jesus, where are you going? I'm coming with you. I'm putting my trust in you. That's what we want to do. And we want to raise disciples that multiply out of themselves that take the light that's in them and help to put it into someone else. Like my friend Sarah, who lives in North America, and she had a good friend who is an angry atheist. I used to be an atheist, and I was an angry atheist. You get some mild atheists, and you get some angry ones. I was an angry one. Sarah's friend was an angry atheist. And Sarah started to pray for her, but what she noticed was as she began to pray for her, her, work, her life got worse. So it was going the wrong way. <laughs> And she had a, this lady had a, a friend, had a breakdown with a relationship with her mother. She had a breakdown in a relationship with her daughter. And her, she was like praying for her and her life's getting worse. And so her friend was in the shower one morning and out of just kind of bitterness and anger, she just said out loud, she said, and after all this, there probably is a God and I'm going to go to hell in the shower on her own. And she heard an audible voice that said, you are in hell, but you don't need to be. She was like, whoa. <laughs> What was that? Anyway, all she could think was her friend, her friend's kids had said, she used to go, she had been to church before and she hated it, but her friend's kids used to go to church and she said, um, uh, well, they, she'd overheard them saying, we actually like our church. And she thought, well, if they like the church, it can't be that bad. So she went along to that church that Sunday, gave her life to Christ, and now is just a passionate and loves Jesus and is full of joy and life, and God's broken into her life. So we are believing God that he will multiply us as disciples to see his kingdom fill the earth. That's my prayer. I hope that's your prayer. There's, Elon Musk is not going to fix this mess, by the way. I've got a newsflash. Even if he gets us to Mars, which I don't think he will, but even if he does, it's not going to fix this mess. There's no government plan. There's no scheme. There's no plan coming down the road from any government that will fix this mess. The only hope is Jesus Christ. That's the only hope. And he will come, it says, and he will wipe away every tear. But in the meantime, he says, you are to pray, God, your kingdom come, your will be done. So our job is to stand in the gap between the future, which is a kingdom that fills the earth where no other kingdom is left, 
and the present, which is where we see this mess and we stand in the gap and we pray, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we partner with him to see that kingdom come, that will being done. I love um, one of our ministries in the church is in the prison. And one of the Sundays, it was last Easter Sunday actually, they had a cross at the front of the service. They go in every other week, had a cross at the front of the service. And they got the guys with a piece of paper and they said, write down the words um, that you've spoken over yourself or that people have spoken over yourself that are negative. And they brought the words to the front and they were on the paper. They said it was just afterwards, the service, reading the words. It was like useless hopeless, waste of space, shouldn't have been born. These are the words that were written. And as they brought the piece of paper, then they got to take a piece of paper of what God speaks over them. Hopeful, uh, joyful, (laughs) child of God. And they said it was just the holy moment as these prisoners got to exchange this junk for the words that Christ speaks over their lives. Just the holy moment. That's the kingdom of God. Breaking into a hopeless place in prison. So that's who we are as Catalyst, that's the family, and it's such a great joy to be here. Love this church, love John, love your team, met know many of you guys, have met many of you guys in various things and seen you on Zoom and blah, blah, blah. So it's really good to be here. And I was gonna, I know you're in a, week, a few weeks speaking about mission, and honestly, John, I was obedient and I was preparing that. And then I felt the Lord say, don't do that. <laughs> and so I'm gonna speak on overcoming discouragement to step into your destiny. Whoa. I got a reaction there. (laughs) Down, but not out. (laughs) Overcoming discouragement to step into your destiny. And I think it actually does fit in because I believe that many of us have this call on our lives. We're either living out that call or we're stepping into that call, but there are things that come from the outside or the inside that hold us back, that stop us from fulfilling the call of God on our lives. Some of you, you, you know you're here, you're faithfully here, but on the outside, you're going through, on the outside, you're doing all the stuff, but on the inside, you're just going through the motions. Something's got into your spirit, that zeal, that, that zest for the Lord and the things of God, it's not quite where it was. The, the temperature's gone down a few notches. Something's been lost. And I think the enemy loves to do that. He loves us just to be turning up and going through the motions and our heart not fully be in it. And so I just want us to speak, because if you're not in that place right now, you will have been in that place and you'll know what it's like, or you will be in the future, or you'll know someone who will be. So no one gets off. This is such a key foundation for us to understand as followers of Jesus. I know it's a cheery title, but you're welcome. Discouragement comes to us all. And the first thing we need to understand is we are not alone. You know, some of the greatest spiritual leaders on earth have faced times like this. Martin Lloyd-Jones, Charles Spurgeon, Mother Teresa, Henry Nouwen, Martin Luther King Jr., many others experience what some call the dark night of the soul. And sometimes it's at the pinnacle of what God's called them to. They're doing what God's called them to. They're in the moment of it. And even in that place, they feel this sense of doubt and despair, what I call ice cream van Mondays. You ever had that? You're driving to work. and You know you're doing what God's calling you to do. But you see the ice cream van and you think, oh, I wish I could be just an ice cream van man or woman. You see all the kids and the parents queuing up, smiles on their faces, and you think, the, you know, the adults would love me, the kids would love me, the dogs would love me, everyone would love me. It will be so, it's always sunny on these days. You ever notice that? 
I would just be there, giving out my ice cream. What a way to live. Anyone ever had a moment like that? <laughs> I would just want to do anything right now to drive an ice cream van. It would be so simple. It's in those moments that the Lord wants to meet us. And I want to read a story from the life of Elijah. He's one of the greatest prophets. And he has just had this incredible moment. He's at the pinnacle of his kind of spiritual success. He's saved the nation of Israel from utter destruction and despair. The nation has done a huge U-turn. And in that space is Elijah. And this is the point where we read that story. So it's 1 Kings 19. Um, and this is how it goes. Ahab, who was the king at the time, told Jezebel, who was the queen, his wife, all that Elijah had done, how he'd killed all the prophets with a sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of those prophets that basically kill you by this time tomorrow. Elijah was afraid and he arose and he ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. He himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It's enough now, Lord, take away my life, for I'm no better than my father's. And he lay down and he slept under the tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and he ate and he drank and went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of the Lord. So this is what's happened. Elijah's at the peak of his fame, of his strength, of his might in God. He's done this incredible victory over the evil prophets who were destroying and distorting the land. And then he hits this massive funk because of one word from the queen. Chris Vallotton says this, the dogs of doom bark at the door of your destiny. I love that. The dogs of doom bark at the door of your destiny. So often you're right at that point. You're either about to step into it or you've already stepped into it and the dogs of doom start barking and it's so easy to buckle in that moment. 1 Timothy 3.12 says, In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Anyone got that as a bookmark? <laughs> <laughs> you do actually I've never had anyone say yes to that question before so well done <laughs> brilliant there's not many people have that as a nice plaque on their mantelpiece <laughs> but you do well done you're one of a kind Elijah's got lost and it's important to understand how does he got lost well firstly he's lost his commitment to God's word that's so often the way that we first get lost He's lost his commitment to God's word. Before this point, when God said go, Elijah went. When God said stop, Elijah stopped. He did everything based on what God said, but then suddenly he runs and God's not said to run. So his commitment to God's word has suddenly gone and that's the beginning of him starting to derail. So often with us, isn't it? We used to be faithful, reading the word, meditating on the word, memorizing the word. And then I just over time, we get busy and we drift. And, and we, but we've still got the backlog. We've still got all that we've read. But suddenly it becomes yesterday's manner and then it becomes stale manner and then it becomes no manner at all. We lose our commitment to the living word of God. It's living and active. It has to be alive in us and living and active. And we lose that commitment. 
Secondly, he lost his connection to the people of God. Notice he isolates himself. He heads to a place he shouldn't have been. And then even the person who was with him, his servant, he isolates himself one more step. Ever notice that? We're in a season of discouragement. What's the temptation? Isolate yourself. Don't tell anyone. Put on your Sunday face. Some people go through that for years. Some of you have been turning up for years with your Sunday face and no one knows what's going on that deep inside you're dying. That's one of the reasons that I became an atheist. I'm not anymore, by the way, I should reassure you. Uh, That's one of the reasons I became because for years I was faithfully attending with the Sunday face and I didn't tell anyone the doubts and the confusion and the things. It was all locked inside and slowly it started to eat away at my soul. I was there, present, but I wasn't present. You know what I mean? You can be in a room, but not in a room, all at the same time. Thirdly, he lost his vision of the greatness of God. The guy who'd stared down 450 prophets who were baying for his death, and he stood them down and called down fire from heaven, buckles at a word, not even given by a person, given to him remotely from someone else. There's no reason for him to be afraid. But unbelief started to get into his heart. He got connect, disconnected from God's word. He'd isolate. He started to isolate himself on the inside. He was feeling alone, as we'll see. And then suddenly he's separated and he's allowed stuff into his heart that causes him to doubt God's power. And we can be that even at the pinnacle of what God's doing. You know, I was uh, leading a church, feeling God had called us to pray for the sick and see the sick healed. And then a friend of mine, and I was saying to the church, look, this isn't just what God wants to do in Africa. This is, like, this is like 15, 20 years ago when we saw so few healings in the UK. We see a lot more now. But we used to read stories from Africa and Asia and God was healing and breaking in. And I was like, guys, God wants, it's the same God of Africa, the same God of Asia, the same God of the UK, the same God of Europe. We need him to move. We need to demonstrate signs and wonders to our community. That's at the heart of the gospel. So I was preaching up a storm, loving it. <laughs> And then a friend of mine who had food intolerances, six, his whole family of six had wheat and dairy intolerances. So it was not fun to live for them. Someone prayed for them and they believed that they'd been healed. And so they all drank a pint of meat, uh, meat drank a pint of milk and ate a deep pan meat feast pizza. I mean, that makes me feel a bit queasy, just the thought of it. They were all fine. They were totally healed. A whole family of six in one evening, in one prayer. I was like, that's amazing. And so I said to the church that Sunday, this has happened. This isn't in Africa. This is in Bristol. God is on the move. Anyway, after the service, a lady walked up to me and she said, I've got food intolerances. Would you pray for me? I was like, oh. And on the inside, I thought to myself, why would you have to ruin a great sermon by asking me to do the same thing? You know, I'd preached a great sermon. I was feeling good about myself. And now you have just ruined my lunch by asking me to do the same thing. So I prayed a very reluctant prayer Anyway, next week she came running up to me and I was expecting her to say, nothing had happened, would you pray again? And instead she said, I've eaten stuff this week I've never eaten before in my life. And I was like, really? (laughs) Neither before or after did I have any faith. (laughs) And I was the one preaching. And yet she took the word of God and took the word of testimony and it became faith in her heart and God did something in her. You know when you're in unbelief, when you start to downplay the stories. You hear a story from the front and you start to think, yeah, really? Is that the whole truth? You start to disbelieve. Now, we should research things. I'm not saying we should believe everything naively. We should feel free to research things. But there's a difference between investigating and cynicism. Anyone know that? 
The cynic says, I just want to investigate, but really it's, they're looking for it not to be true. The faithful believer is like, yeah, I get it. Some people make things up, they exaggerate. I want to know, before I repeat this story, I want to know if it's true. But I believe that God does this stuff today. There's a whole world of difference between the two. He lost his passion for the things of God. He lost his passion for what God was doing. He just lost his passion. That's how he got started to get derailed. Now for me, it, around healing again, you know, it wasn't long after we started to see people healed regularly. And I would come back so excited. Caroline would say, what happened tonight? I was like, we, we saw someone healed with a back condition. It was amazing. It wasn't two years later before I'd come back from a meeting and Caroline would say, how'd it go? I'd be like, yeah, there's a couple of backs healed. Anything in the fridge? I'd lost the, so easy to become over familiar. Is this, is this just me? Is this like a confessional time? Should we just like, <laughs> so easy to become over familiar, isn't it? The things that once made us passionate, suddenly we just lose interest, just become routine. And even Elijah had lost his desire to live. And what's interesting about this is he's not the only one. So often if you've been in this space where you're losing the will to even live, you feel so isolated, particularly amongst other Christians. You feel like no one else feels like this. This is just me. There must be something wrong with me. Well, listen to this. Moses told God to kill me at once. Job wished that he would never have been born. Jeremiah cursed the day of his birth. Jonah asked God to take away his life because death was better than life. And then we've got Elijah. So some of the greatest prophets of old all had times where they wished their life would end, where they didn't see the point of life. What's the point? You're not on your own. All the more reason to come into the community of God and talk to someone about it. What, what, what do these point to? Well, you know on your car you've got the engine management light and it turns orange <laughs> and then it goes, you know you're in trouble when it goes red. <laughs> It is a fool that keeps driving when the red engine management light is on. But so many of us as Christians, these signs are meh, 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 meh. And we're like, no, I'm going to keep going by the, faith of, by the grace of God. And the engine management light of our soul is blaring and blaring and blaring. And we just refuse to stop until we blow up. You look at some of the things that's happening to some of the most influential Christian leaders around the world, I can guarantee you the engine management light was going a long time before they got themselves into such a mess. This, doesn't just, this affects all of us. It's time to listen to those lights. When you lose the passion, you lose your vision of God, you lose commitment to God's word, when you isolate yourself, those are the signs. Something's wrong on the inside. Don't just keep going through the motions hoping that it goes away. Bring yourself into community. Talk. That's what this is helping us for. Bring yourself back to the Lord. Look for the signs. What are the signs in your soul, in your life? You know. I mean, for me, one of my signs is business. I love business. I was in business before I was called into the church. That's what I would be doing if God would let me, but he won't. <laughs> my son's got the bug. He's like, Dad, is it okay for a Christian to want to be a millionaire? I was like, you go for it, boy. He's like, my first thing I want to do, Dad, is I'm going to pay off your mortgage. I'm like, hallelujah, I'm right behind you. <laughs> I bless that anointing for business. 
You know, I've always got ideas of starting businesses. Like even on the side, I've got limited time, but I started probably, I've got two or three business ideas going on all the time. Caroline just like rolls her eyes again and, okay, here we go. But there was a season in my life where it just like, I just couldn't be bothered. Just couldn't be bothered. Just lost the, just wouldn't, couldn't be bothered to start anything new. Couldn't be bothered. That was a red light. Caroline's like, what's wrong with you? What you want to do is watch Netflix. What's wrong with you? Something, something in these, all of us have different. For you, maybe it's worship. You used to love worship. You were down the front. Now you're at the back. Sorry for those at the back. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Not at the back, back. Metaphorically, you're at the back. You used to be full. You used to love worship. You used to worship in your room for hour after hour. Now, 10 minutes in, you're looking at your watch thinking, I wonder what I'm for lunch. Anyone notice that? <laughs> All of us will have different signs. Your engine management light will look different for you. Your spiritual engine, you, only you will know. That's the thing. No one else can tell you because on the outside, you'll look like you're just fine. But you will know. The light is on and it's flashing. And I would say that's the time to realise and do something. What is it for you? Many suffering signs. Here's the good news. God has got a restoration plan. Thank you. Someone's like, finally, at last. He's on to the good news. Notice that God's plan for Elijah starts with some simple things. Rest and food. So often we get ourselves into this bad place through overwork, through overstress, through pushing ourselves too hard. I'm fulfilling God's plan for my life. But all these people need me. I can't stop now. Anyone ever had thoughts like that? <laughs> God has a simple start. Rest and food and water he gives to Elijah. He's got a restoration plan. So often it starts with getting ourselves back in line, getting to bed early, getting to bed on time, doing the things that you used to do, taking up that hobby that you used to do that you've pushed to one side, doing the simple things. Because we don't like to admit it, but we are one person, mind, body and spirit, and we work together. So those simple things, eating healthily. You know, for me, so many times I've gone out for walks with people. I've seen someone in a funk and I said, hey, let's just go for a walk. And we go for a walk. And honestly, they think I'm a miracle worker because by the time we've finished, they feel great. And I've done nothing. We've just gone for a walk in nature and I've listened. <laughs> Pulled them back into community. People have done the same to me. If you know someone who's in a funk around you, pray for them, yes, take them for a walk. Something simple about just getting back to the simple things. That's the start of the plan. But Elijah is in deep. Sometimes that, you know what? Sometimes those simple things just fix it. Get the normal things back in place, get your life back on balance. And to be honest, within a few weeks, you're like, hey, I'm good again. But Elijah's in deep. You know when an angel appears to you and gives you supernatural food and you're still not getting out of your funk? You are in a funk. <laughs> that is officially a funk with a capital F right there. You are in deep. And Elijah's in deep because even this angel can't pull him out of it. So this is what it says. There he came to a cave and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of God came to him and said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with a sword. And I, even I am left and they seek my life to take it away. You notice that when God asks you a question, he already knows the answer. And he opens up Elijah with a simple question. What are you doing here? And out of him comes this pouring out. 
stream of junk, of mess. And you notice a few things in his thinking that have already, it's clear, have gone wrong. Firstly, he's lost his focus on what God has done. He's focused more on what God hasn't done. He doesn't even mention the story that we're talking about thousands of years later, that God poured down fire from heaven. He doesn't even mention it. It's not even in his radar. All he's focused on is what God hasn't yet done, rather than what God has done. If we want to avoid these funks, one of the first ways of doing it is to keep our eyes fixed on what God has done rather than what he hasn't yet done. Keep our eyes fixed on what he has done. You know, my friend Katie, she keeps a prayer journal. I've never kept a prayer journal, even though I've wanted to, but Katie inspires me to keep a prayer journal more than anyone else. I never have kept one still, but this might inspire you. (laughs) Because every year she writes a journal of all her prayers on the left side of the page and all the answers to prayer on the right hand side of the page, and she reviews it at the end of the year. And this year, I got to read through Katie's prayer journal. And I tell you what, I was inspired. (laughs) Because were there a lot of prayers that weren't yet answered? Absolutely they were. But also there were so many prayers that had an answer written on the right-hand side that were now crossed through. So many prayers. Just that simple discipline of keeping a prayer journal through the year strengthens her and keeps her focused. Yes, she wants to keep praying for the things God hasn't yet done, but man alive, she is focused on the things that God has done. Secondly, Elijah magnifies his losses and forgets about victories. Killed your prophets, He said, but he forgets that 450 of the enemy had just also been killed. He magnifies the losses and he forgets about the victories. I don't know about you, but I'm exactly the same. I forget the great stories of things that God's done, but I can't help focus on the things that the the, the losses, the misses. I can't help remembering those. They stay, they stick in my soul forever. Is anyone else the same? Exactly that. So what I do is I keep a list in my, in my notes on my phone of all the great stories from the year. If I'm in a meeting and someone tells a great story, I'll write it down. I just write them down through the year and I review them regularly. Why? Because it keeps my focus on what God has done because I so easily will forget. And when next time I feel this, uh, ah, something happened or it wasn't great or whatever, I can review that list and say, okay, yeah, but God is doing so many good things. There's some things I'm still waiting for. There's some losses, of course. This is a battle. We're in a spiritual war. Of course, there's going to be losses. But at the same time, I can review what God is doing. Elijah felt even more isolated than he actually was. I, only I am left. Even though actually he knew that Obadiah, his friend, had kept 700 prophets alive. And yet Elijah's focused on the fact, I am only, I'm left. You ever been in that place? I'm the only one work. Am I the only one working in this church? <laughs> Anyone? You've all felt that. <laughs> Am I the only one who's actually doing anything? Am I the only one in this whole town who loves Jesus? For goodness sake! None of you have ever felt that, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm the one sacrificing the most. I'm the one giving the most. What are these guys doing? Are in my small group? They're doing nothing. Some of you, your spouses, like. <laughs> I was in a funk like that one time. I was like, oh, I'm the only one doing anything. And then I got a story through of my friend, one of my friends who's in a a remote nation. I can't even say what it is. Massively persecuted nation. Horrible flooding. We couldn't even get any resources to him. They were completely cut off. And the story came out that he just baptised 380 people. And I just come out of a prayer time where I'm like, I'm the only one doing anything. I was like, okay, all right, he's doing something as well. But I'm the only one. 
so easy, isn't it, to get in that place of self-pity. That's why we've got to stay in community and lift our eyes and think, oh, we're okay. I can't judge what anyone else is doing. Others are also working on this. We focus on what we've done right and what everyone else has done wrong. I've been very jealous, says Elijah. And we believe the enemy's version of the, of the future. They want to kill me. And yet we forget that how often God has spared our lives. That every breath that we have is a gift of God. That none of us have, know that we're going to live more than a moment. Any one of us could walk out of this building and drop dead and no one could say, God, you owed me a lot more life. Sorry, where's the contract that you that said you had more life than that? He owes us nothing. Every single breath that we take is a gift of his grace. It's a gift of his grace. He owes me nothing. He owes me nothing but an eternal future separated from him. And yet he sent Christ to pull me out of that destruction. He doesn't owe me anything. He knows, owes none of us anything. So everything we have is a gift of his grace. If we keep our eyes fixed on that, we realize who he is and what he's done. And God's grace is about to meet Elijah in a major, major way. He's about to call Elijah out of this place. So that's some of the ways we keep out of this place, some of the ways we get out of it. But God gently leads Elijah back. Let's read verse 11. God said to Elijah, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord wasn't in the wind, and after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord wasn't in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in the cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Behold, there came a voice to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel, forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, only, even I, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Notice that God doesn't lecture or moan at Elijah. He understands Elijah. He understands us. He knows the Bible says that we are but grass. And he just asks him the same question again after having met him in a very different way. Elijah was the Elijah who knew the God of fire. He called down fire from heaven. He knew God speaking in the loud and the confrontational. And yet in this moment, God speaks to him in a very different way. I've noticed that when we're in these times of discouragement and doubt and depression, it's so often in those times that God meets us in a very different way to the way that he's ever met us before. It's almost like we discover a new aspect to who God is. I remember some years ago, I was in such a funk, such a low place spiritually. And just that summer, I just went and took a holiday. I just, we just, I just need to get away. So we took a holiday as a family. And in the space of two weeks, I met two children who had lost limbs. And to be honest, I've not many, met many kids who've lost limbs in my life. And I met two in the space of two or three weeks. And it was just bizarre. And the first one was a lad who'd lost a leg. He'd had his leg amputated because of cancer when he was at three or four. 
But the spirit on this guy, I mean, he was such an adventurous spirit. He, he like, they showed, his parents showed me videos of him skiing on one ski, and he's a better skier than I will ever be. He used to do just jumps in the air. He would race around the conference that we were at on crutches faster than my boys could run with their two legs. He was faster than them with crutches on one leg. He was just phenomenal. Now, I mean, years later now, he does a, a delivery service. He has a bike specially made so he can pedal it with one leg, and he has it on the back. And I mean, he's just phenomenal. So I met this lad, which was like, whoa, okay. I was thinking, feeling pretty sorry for myself. And this is a bit of a, a, bit of a shock. Okay, okay, that's okay, I get it. And then two weeks later, I met another lad. And he was on the beach, not a lad that we knew. He just kind of came up and started playing with me and my boys. And he had one arm amputated at the, at the elbow. And I was like, and even, I'm like, not spiritually the sharpest. And I'm like, okay, this is more than a, more of a coincidence. That I'm, there's something weird going on here. So then we were playing with Freddie and get to know him and playing with him, all, you know, all day. And in the afternoon, we were sitting down with him and I have an ice cream. And uh, he suddenly holds up his his stump and he says, um, "I'm the only one in my school with one of these." And Caroline, in a stroke of genius, said to him, "Is that a good thing or a bad thing?" And he said, "I decided to make it a good thing." Whoa. And he then went on to tell stories of how he's the fastest swimmer in his entire school, even though he's only got one arm. And just the spirit on this lad, a non-believer, suddenly woke me up from my self-pity and my heaviness and thinking, what the heck? You know, when we're in these moments, when we got the, the, the flak flying and we're feeling so sorry for ourselves, that voice comes back to me again and again. I decided to make it a good thing. I decided to make it a good thing. We will get beaten. We will get attacked. This is a spiritual war we're in. We will suffer casualties and losses. What are you going to do with it? Are you going to go under? Is it going to cause you to take a step back? Are you going to drift away from the calling that God's got on your life? Or are you going to say, you know what? I decided to make it a good thing. You know, we had a, a worship leader who died of cancer. And I tell this story tenderly because I know you've had your own losses. I just want to tell her story because she wants it to be told. She was 41. She got terminal cancer. She died within five weeks. On her deathbed, she was doing two things. One, she was pastoring the people around her. And she was saying to me, she said to one of our pastors, she said, don't let anyone get disappointed about what's happened to me. Don't let anyone get disappointed with God over what's happened to me. She said, for me, this is a win-win. She said, I've been singing about meeting Jesus all my life and I'm about to meet him face to face. Or she said, I'm going to get a miraculous healing and testify to what he's done. I'm, either way, this is a win-win. Don't let anyone get disappointed with God over what's happened to me. And it was such a tender moment for us as a community because we're, like, we're grieving those of us who've left behind. And of course, there's all sorts of implications and consequences for us who've left behind. But it was such a moment of, she was like, I've decided to make this a good thing. <laughs> I'm believing God for a miracle, but if I don't get it, which she didn't, in that moment, she was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn this into worship, and I want you to do the same. And so we, as a result of that, we had a celebration. I know you guys have gone through similar things as a community. We had a celebration just for her life, and it was such a gospel moment of someone who'd given their whole lives for Jesus and was now getting the reward of their worship. They were seeing him face to face, having sung for 40 odd years about seeing him face to face. There's something about 
in these moments which are tender and, and they're painful and I'm not saying it's easy to walk it through. It is hard. But it's not something we do alone. It's something we do in community together. We grieve in community. We write laments. I don't think we're very good, particularly in the charismatic church, of writing our laments. The Bible, read some of the Psalms. The Psalmist is like, God, how could you let this happen? But I will praise you. We've got to get better at writing our laments, of learning to grieve together rather than isolating ourselves and separating ourselves. We've got to get better. I'm learning from my uh, Nigerian friends who know how to grieve. They know how to lament. They know how to grieve a loss. They're so good at it, so much better than, than us Westerners, I found. But it's in these moments that so often God meets us, he restores us, and he gives us a fresh commission gives us a fresh direction. David Watson, one of the founder of um, Modern Missions, uh, he, um, he was in uh, northern India in the Bhojpur region, uh, I think that's how you say it, and he um, got a, his, one of his colleagues was martyred, one of his team was martyred, and he just went into, and it, it, he just went into such a spiritual depression. He moved away, went to Singapore for a year, and he just was like in a hotel in Singapore, just totally depressed, thinking, I just can't keep doing this. This is too hard. You know, he's left this guy had been martyred, left a wife and three small children. He's like, I was the one who brought him here. I cannot keep doing this. I can't take the responsibility. He's just broken. But in that place, he just kept reading the New Testament over and over again. And in that, God gave him the insight for some of the things that we're learning now about how to see multitudes of people become disciples and multiply. He moved back to northern India, met a guy called Victor John, and between them, over the next 30 years, they've baptised over 10 million people. But you need to know it came out of a place of darkness, of spiritual lostness, of brokenness. That's exactly what we see with Elijah, and we'll finish here. God takes Elijah, I haven't got time to read it. He recommissions him. He brings him into contact with Elisha, who's to become his right-hand man over the next few years. And together they see the nation turned around. So often, if we would take these moments of doubt and disillusionment and despair and discouragement, if we will bring them to the Lord and bring them into community, God will want to do a beautiful thing and a wonderful thing with us in our hearts. It's not easy, it's painful, but God has got a plan for us. And it doesn't get derailed in these times. He calls us together into the future that he has for us. What's your, what's your take home? Are you lost on your spiritual journey? Have you been lost? Do you know someone who's been lost? The question is not if. It's a question of when and what are you going to do with it? How are you going to help move together forward into what God's got for you? Brilliant. Thank you, Father. Team, why don't you come up? Thanks, guys.